So this is the second Sunday after the celebration of Epiphany. And Epiphany, if you're not sure what that means, is about the appearing or the manifestation of Christ to all people, in particular the Gentiles, as typified in the Magi, the three kings, as we sang in the song. And so there's only six Sundays in this little season we're in before we get to uh, Ash Wednesday and Lent. That starts on February 14th. And so I, as I looked at the lectionary, the per- prescribed readings for this season, I was looking for some uniting theme, and it seemed fitting, considering that it's about epiphany and a manifestation, to focus on seeing Christ. So I'm titling this little series we're going to do for the next few weeks on seeing Christ. We want to see Christ. We want to see him in all of Scripture, and we want to see him in our lives, in the real world, doing stuff as the resurrected Lord. Now, I'm going to begin today's sermon uh, doing something I don't typically do. Uh, two things, actually. One, I'm going to make a football reference, and two, I'm going to scandalize my family. Um, I think at this, in the same instance. But considering the big game today, Jaguars against the Steelers, and being from Pittsburgh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, who to cheer for is, is up for a question. Um, and I've decided I'm going to cheer for the Jaguars today. And... Um, <laughs> I think the Lord really cares a whole lot about NFL. Um, But one of the reasons is because there's something really fun about a team that's been down on its luck for a long time starting to ascend, right? And it's an uphill fight today. They've got to go to Heinz Field where Steelers have home field advantage, and it's like freezing, below freezing there, which is really hard. Um, And the Steelers have been in this routine before. So um, I'm rooting for the underdog. But I was thinking about underdogs in general and why we like them so much. And I think, you know, I haven't put a ton of thought into this, but I think the human condition, people, people in general everywhere identify with underdogs. People like the underdog. If you did a survey, most people would rather have an underdog come from behind and win than to have a team that just always is winning. And I think that's because at some point and multiple points in our lives, We know what it feels like to be the underdog. We know what it feels like to be down and out, to be the one who is picked to lose. Sometimes it feels like it's impossible. There's no way we're going to win. Something has us down. Uh, Now, maybe right now you're flying high, but just give it some time, and then you'll become an underdog again. And so there's something about this, the human condition. Um, And even if you're the one person who is actually a member of our church that has an Olympic gold medal, um, I mean, maybe that person knows what it's like to be on the top of the hill. But even for that person, there's somebody younger, faster coming up, gunning for you to knock you off the hill. Somebody's always faster, smarter, better, prettier, whatever. And so we can start to feel like life is futile and we can despair of that. And so we're looking for hope. So that's one of the reasons, I think, that we like the underdog story. Another reason that is a lot more existential is that as Hannah's prayer in that, in, in that uh, second reading says, the one who, who founded the earth on the pillars of the earth, the God who created everything and sustains life, is actually one who roots for the underdog. And my main point this morning is that God delights to show his power to the weak. And that's, that's the person who created everything. So that is written right into the very fiber of your being and the universe. And I shudder to think what it would be like 
if we lived in a universe where it was truly survival of the fittest, and the sovereign Lord picked only the most qualified and the strongest and let the weak die off, you know, you're really good. You can be on my team. You're not. I, I, we've been so conditioned, if you've been around the church and the gospel and heard anything about God, to understand that he is a champion of the weak, and he displays his strength through weakness. So this morning, if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling the underdog, if you're hurting in some way, you're in the right place because we come to worship a God who delights to give his strength to those weak spots, to those, those people who are, are down. So our text, if you want to turn in a Bible, is uh, it's on page 225, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um, one scholar said that this little prayer, this 10 verses of Hannah's prayer, um, is the interpretive key to all of 1st and 2nd Samuel. If we, if we study this prayer and understand it, it makes sense of the whole sweep of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And what we've got here is a barren woman, a barren wife, who is in great personal pain about this, and shame and taunting, and what God is about to do through her is raise up one of the mightiest prophets that has ever lived, the prophet Samuel, her son. And then as we track through First and Second Samuel, we see this theme of God working through weakness. So King David is the central figure. And David, when that prophet Samuel anoints him, isn't even considered for the running. So David's dad goes and gets almost all of his sons to stand before the prophet and none of them are the one the Lord has chosen. Goes through seven sons, and he says to his father Jesse, surely you have another son. And he goes, oh, well, there's David out in the sheep fields. He's, you know, the little one. You don't want him. And that's the one that gets anointed. So here's that theme again. God's purpose and God's power and God's favor on the weak, the ones that would not be normally chosen, are chosen. That's how the Lord works. So the account here on both sides of this prayer opens with Hannah, this, this um, faithful woman who is in great pain. But it ends up telling us one of the biggest socio-political transitions for the people of God. They go from being a nomadic tribal federation to a unified monarchy under a great king, King David. And that happens in First and Second Samuel. And so right away we're starting with a it's not just a personal interest story, this Hannah. It actually shows us something about God's care for the individual as well as the whole. He's doing a big thing, and he's doing it with specific situations, specific circumstances. And right away, that starts to give me strength, and hopefully you strength, to realize my little life on the grand scheme of things matters to God. He's big, but he also is big enough to care about the details. So here's this person. Now, her family situation um, is, is coming into a time when Israel was in a bad spot. If you were to jump back a couple of pages and, and just skip over the, the sweet little book of Ruth, and we can talk about that in another sermon, and go to the last verse of Judges, it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. And God had raised up all these judges to lead Israel and the people just cast off restraint, and sometimes the judges cast off restraint, and everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. That's a terrible thought. And um, the story, there have been a number of stories written that kind of play out what happens when people do whatever's right in their own eyes. 
When I was in like eighth grade, we had to read The Lord of the Flies about some British schoolboys that are plane crashed on an island and it's just those children fending for themselves. There's a modern version I've recently been dabbling in called The 100 on Netflix and it's a futuristic, but, you know, the earth has been scorched by nuclear holocaust, and so people have gone into orbit for a hundred years around the earth on a space station, hoping the earth will heal itself, and when they finally start to run out of air, they pick a hundred, hence the name, they pick 118-year-olds uh, who are criminals and locked up, and they send them down on their own to the earth to see if they can survive. And as soon as they land, you know, they come out of this little pod and there's a bunch of teenagers and there's no real leadership structure. And so the question becomes, well, what are the rules? And there's a saying, whatever we want. They say, whatever we want. And you can imagine where that goes. Hence the multiple series of the thing. It quickly decays down into injustice, violence, murder, immorality, all sorts of problems because the people are doing what's right in their own eyes. That's what was happening to God's people, Israel. And so then he raises up a prophet who will then transition them to a monarchy through a bad king and then a good king. Right in the midst of this, all this is happening. So Hannah's family situation is such that she's married to a rich man. He's wealthy and of good lineage, and it gives his genealogy, and we know he's wealthy because he's rich enough to have two wives, which, of course, we don't condone, but back then they had polygamy, and he had two wives, and... One of his wives had a number of children, and Hannah had none. And even though she had a rich husband, and he favored her and did extra things for her and expressed his love for her, it wasn't enough because she was barren. And the other wife was taunting her constantly, making fun of her for this, like she was under a curse, and just constantly tormenting her. And so Hannah goes up to the place where they worship, and, um, and she cries out to God about her barrenness. Now, I'm sure she was speaking just about herself, not realizing that her barrenness was symbolic of the human condition. In fact, Israel was barren. It was spiritually and faithless, spiritually barren and faithless. In fact, even the leadership is shown to be obtuse and immoral, and Eli the priest thinks she's drunk and accuses her of being drunk, when meanwhile, she's in church, and she's weeping in her soul, and so she's mouthing her prayers, not speaking them out loud, and he thinks she's just a drunk fool. And she's not. She's actually coming with a real prayer and a vow. Oh God, if you'll take my shame away and give me a son, I will give him back to you to serve you. And she makes this promise to God. And then, you know, once Eli the priest figures it out, he pronounces a blessing on her and God answers the prayer. So then Samuel is born and is raised up and handed over. So once, once he's, he's a young boy and once it's time, she brings him to the priest and says, okay, He's going to be raised up in the, in the house of God. And she every year visits him and brings clothes and gifts for him. But he now is being raised to serve in God's uh, worship, in the centralized worship. And it's right there that then this prayer is inserted. Now, it's a highly stylized and structured poem. Hebrew poetry needs, needs some significant thought. You've got to sit there and look at how the lines, they, they build on one another in each verse. An idea is stated and then it's advanced in some idea, uh, some way a little bit further or some, something is drawn out about it. And this one is bookended with the word horn in my ESV, although it looks like sometimes they use the word strength. A horn is a symbol for strength. 
If you run into a bullhorn, it hurts. They're big, they're powerful. The horn is a symbol of strength. And, and, and she says in verse one, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My strength is being lifted up in God. Even though she's despised and barren, she's finding her strength in God. And then by the end though, because now remember, this is a bigger thing. This is about the barrenness of God's people. And it's not just about one woman's strength. It's about strength for God's people. By verse 10, it says the horn of your anointed, which is the word Messiah, by the way, is lifted up. So God is lifting up the strength of his people as well as this individual one symbolizing them. Now, there are some reversals that happen in here. And between verses 4 and 7, we see things that should win, not win. So, for instance, the bows, as in bow and arrow, the bows of the mighty are broken. I don't care how strong you are. If you don't have a weapon, you're pretty weak in war. So, the bows are all broken. And then, he, and then she writes, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full, meaning full bellies, have now hired themselves out for bread. They're so desperate, they have to go hire themselves out to have their bread. But those who were hungry are no longer hungry. He's satisfied them. The barren has borne seven. Now, if you read the rest of the story, Hannah actually goes on to have six children in total, five more after Samuel, but seven is the number of completeness. So what was barren is now complete and fruitful. And then contrasted with that, the opposite is, but she who has many children is forlorn or bereaved. Then, then it's very explicit. The Lord kills and he brings life. I mean, even as that song we were singing, it's your breath in our lungs. So you and I breathe every breath. We are sustained by God. He is the one who is the God of life. And he decides when life ends and when it begins. And God is in charge of all of that. And then verse 7, the Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So all of this is laid out um, about how God takes what is weak and he turns it over and brings strength to it. The word for, F-O-R, is in verse 8. And it says for, now here's, this is, this is the reason why he can do this. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the earth. In other words, he is the creator of all things. All power is his. All strength is his. He can do what he wants. And if you jumped back to verse 2, we see a triplet of statements that talk about his uh, uniqueness. His, he is incomparable. No one compares to God. She, she says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And here she is speaking on behalf of the covenant people and us as well. There is no one like God. No one even comes close to him. So I would rather be weak and have a strong God than have strength, but a number of weak gods out there that are competing and fighting. That's clear. There is one God and he is strong. Now when it ends on that idea of the horn of the Messiah, the anointed one, we start to picture Jesus. If you look at the whole scriptures as one consistent story with patterns that repeat, here's a pattern of God doing something. Taking this barren woman, raising up a powerful leader and a monarchy through her. We see a similar thing if you've read the Magnificat, which is the prayer of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She most likely read this and even took her prayer from some of this. 
And so that's the one where it says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit exalts in God, my Savior. And it starts out with her and says, you know, generations will call me blessed. But then it goes on and speaks of the whole covenant people and what God is going to do for his people, including you, if you are a believer. God is going to bring his strength in the midst of your weakness. God is going to do this because that's who he is. And the most powerful image of strength through weakness is that one. Our Lord so graced that cross that what was a symbol of being a criminal, under judgment, um, death, suffering, destruction, all of that has become worthy to be worn as jewelry. It's a sign of glory. It's a sign of strength and salvation because Jesus, though he was powerful and strong, chose weakness so that we could have his strength. Again, there's that great exchange, and we see that parallel here in Hannah's prayer, and we see it in Mary's prayer, the Magnificat, and we see it all throughout the Psalms and all throughout the Scriptures. Our Lord delights to show His power in weakness. Now, sometimes people will level, uh, they'll, um, level this charge against Christianity. They'll say, well, Christianity is just for people who are emotionally weak and need a crutch. And every time I hear that, I smile and I think, oh, yes, that is so true. I do need a crutch. I am weak physically, emotionally, spiritually, every other way. And I will lean on Jesus as that crutch. And if you think you're strong, maybe you're on a high right now, just wait a little while. You will, you will come down. Your strength will wear out. Your resources will be spent. Your physical health will go away. Weakness will come to all of us. Yes, we do need that crutch, and God delights to give it. And so even though some of the superficial things might be wasting away and fading, and you might be going through a difficult situation, the soul that leans on God is strengthened. I think even just off the cuff of Isaiah 40, where it talks about even even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, and they will rise up as on eagles' wings. So God will work through whatever you're dealing with. And I don't know what it is. I know some, some of the things that are going on and some of what you're dealing with. And God will bring strength to you. And what Hannah does here is she gives a model of a prayer. In fact, it'd be worth praying this, even memorizing parts of it, for when you feel weak, to remind yourself of how strong God is and who he is and how it is that he delights to give us strength. And he receives glory in that. And in closing, let me go to the Apostle Paul, who so wonderfully summarized this because he had a physical problem. He had a number, Paul had a number of problems working against him in his ministry, and God kept getting glory through those, whether it was being locked up in the imperial prison with the guards, and he's proclaiming the gospel to all the people in Rome, or a physical ailment, God's power was displayed through Paul. And so at one point, the Apostle gets a vision of heaven, which would tempt any of us to become conceited about that, you know, if we, if we actually could see on the other side of things. Um, and he says, and I'm, I'm just going to read you a couple verses. I think it's cool because in my Bible, I've got the words of Jesus in red letters. And when I'm reading Paul, to suddenly see red letters in there got my attention. And so Paul says this, he says, I was given a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what it is. It might have been blindness. We can speculate on it, but some physical ailment that the Apostle Paul had, that was given to him, and he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. See, Paul saw his his weakness as something that God was using for a bigger purpose so that he could have this vision of the heavenly courts and not be overcome by 
pride and conceit. So God allowed this, whatever it was, to come into his life for a greater spiritual purpose. You can reflect on that a little bit in your own situation, see what that might mean. But so God is at work through even something like sickness. And then he says, three times I prayed. Three times I prayed that the Lord would take this away. But he said to me, and here's the red letters, which means this is Jesus speaking, and it's the resurrected Jesus. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. How powerful is that? Our Lord delights to show his power in our weakness. So I don't know what your weakness is, but I want to encourage you to bring it to him today and let him be your strength and let him display his strength and his power through that circumstance. I don't know what it'll look like, but I'm telling you, you'll see, you'll see hints of it all over if you open your eyes to see it. If you join, join, I want to encourage you to read through this and join with Hannah in praying that prayer about who God is. So this morning, let's bring that to him. Let's, let's bring our weaknesses to him. And if you should find yourself feeling strong, repent of that. Like, repent of the arrogance of it. Strength is good. I mean, God gives you the strength. But the one thing that you find in the Scripture that turns him off is when people are self-sufficient and they're caught up in their own strength and they're arrogant. I'm, I've got this, God. I'm good. I'm solid. That is what really turns the Lord off. But a broken and contrite heart, he never turns away. When we say, I need your help, then he leans in. So let's do that. Let's pray that prayer and see God's power work through our brokenness and our weakness. In fact, would you pray with me right now? Lord, I love this story. The meta-narrative, your big story of what you are doing in history. How you take what is broken and weak and make good and your power comes into it. Lord, each one of us in some way is struggling and we bring that to you today. We pray that you would show us your strength. Give us the courage to repent of doing it in our power and trying to fix our problems ourselves. Help us to have the kind of worship that your servant Hannah had as we declare that you are worthy, you are sovereign, you are the creator, and yours is the power. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.